And I'm reading from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. This will be a series of about eight messages on David, the man after God's heart. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and go, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the, the one whom I will designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Then it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab and, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Next Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, to, bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. So he went and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes, and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Anoint, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. The year was 1809 and it was a very significant year, although not too many people noticed because all eyes were on Austria where Napoleon was doing his damage. And while all eyes were on Napoleon marching across Austria, there were little babies being born in England and in America, would become famous men. In fact, 1809 was a bumper crop. William Gladstone was born that year and Alfred Lord Tennyson. Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in 1809. Edgar Allan Poe began his short and tragic life that year. The Darwins 
Mr. Darwin was a physician. The Darwins gave birth to a son and named him Charles. And in a little log cabin in Hardin County, Illinois, to an illiterate laborer and his wife, a son was born and they named him Abraham. But who cared about these babies being born because everybody was concerned about Napoleon's taking Austria and marching across Europe. Somebody should have noticed because the impact of these men, that these men, babies then, men later, would have on, human, on the human race was astounding. In 1020 B.C., there were a lot of Jews living in Israel. Nobody really knew or cared that there was a little boy growing up in Israel by the name of David, tending sheep. Because all eyes were on Saul. He was the king. As a matter of fact, he was the king that Israel wanted and prayed for. And God said, I'll give you a king. Sent leanness to their soul because of it. And King Saul, even though he was the king, Israel desired. He was a disappointment. He was a failure. His days were numbered. And it was a tragic time in the life of Israel. People were in panic. What are we going to do? What's happening? The king is such a failure. But all the time, God had his hand on history and on another man upon somebody that nobody noticed. And while everybody else had failed, God was raising up His man. I want you to look sometime, maybe we won't have time tonight, at chapter 15 and see the last glimpse of Saul's fading image. And you'll begin reading in verse 24. In fact, let me just read that verse or two. Now Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have failed. I'm a failure, a disappointment to myself and to God and to everybody else. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and, and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I'll not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go. Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. You know the rest of the story there. You may not really know what's going on here, though. Saul knows that he's failed, and he's confessed that failure, but that's not really what concerns him. He is, he's concerned about his image. And he's trying to get Samuel to go back with him so that the people won't know that things are different now. He wants to, Samuel to take part in this cover-up. That's, that, that's in the story here. And he's begging Samuel to go back, this man of God, so that nobody will know that Saul has been rejected by God. And there's this cover-up plan. That the image of Saul was so important to him. As a matter of fact, Saul had a terrible self-image. He was insanely jealous of David. And, and, and I've got a theory about that. Now this is all free and it's parenthetical, but let me give you my theory about this. I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced after 30 years of counseling that 
that poor self-images are reflected, you know, in our envy and our jealousy. And, and, and where did this terrible image distortion come from that plagued the life of Saul? I think it came from the fact that he was so different from his peers. I mean, he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He felt like a freak. Now, that's my theory. And even though when we read about Saul, he was this great giant of a man who stood head and shoulders above everybody else, to a young boy growing up, that, that really, I mean, they didn't have basketball in, you know. So standing head and shoulders above everybody else, he just looked like, you know, he was different. That's so, you know, devastating to kids as they look or you know, at themselves and they look at others and they feel so self-conscious. They feel like, you know, I'm just this ugly freak. And this image distortion began when Saul was just a young man and it just developed until he had this terrible self-image and he was terribly self-conscious and his image is so important to him. And now that God has rejected him as king, he's begging Samuel to kind of maintain for him some kind of image among the people. And Samuel is very gracious. Verse 31, he does go back. Well, Saul never did take God seriously. He played with God. And he polished his image with God. He was so unlike David. And this is a time of national emergency and national crisis and the people began to panic. Man was in panic, but God was providing. Let me give you this basic truth. That in the times when man is panicking, God is always providing. Our panic is God's opportunity for provision. Now there's an extended period of time between chapter 16 and verse 35 of chapter 15. And there's this period of time of national panic and concern and anxiety. It, it, you know, and, and relevant to that is, is, is this basic truth, and this is the thesis, the theme of this whole thing, is that you know, in the time when we are most anxious and we're about to panic, you can take heart because God's never, you know, released or relinquished, relinquished His power. God's going to provide. So He says in verse 1, Why would you grieve over this man since I've rejected him? I mean, when the man of God changes, nothing changes about God. When man fails, God hasn't. When man stubs his toe and makes a mistake and fails doesn't mean that God has failed and God is saying in verses 1 through 5 you don't know about tomorrow but I hold tomorrow in my hand why should you panic I'm in control of this I've rejected the man myself now you think it's a time of national calamity because the king has failed I've rejected him don't worry about that and so when you panic, you question God, and God just keeps giving direction, and we keep questioning, God keeps giving direction. And what, what, what seems to be underlying all this is you just need to sit still for a while and listen to what i got to say. You, you don't need to know why. You just need to know what. 
You don't need to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. You just need to know I'm doing and what I'm doing. I'm getting ready to show you if you'll just get quiet. That's what God's saying here to the nation. And the amazing thing about it is that while all this panic is going on in the, in the, in the nation, here's old David over here keeping flock, you know, keeping his sheep, and he doesn't know anything like that's going on, you know. The nation's over here in turmoil, and Saul has failed, and he's making all this confession, and he's begging for somebody to help him hold on to what he's got, and David's over here and doesn't even know it, but God's over here raising up the greatest king that Israel would ever know, he's out there tending sheep and didn't even know it. It's impressive to me to know tonight that while you and I come to the, when we come to the end of our rope and we come to the extremities of life over there somewhere on the backside of nowhere, God is providing and God is raising up and God is taking care of our needs, and God's in the midst of providing for those needs. And so look at verse 6. He said, I want to get, he told Jesse, he said, I want you to get all your sons together, and God's going to anoint one of them king. And so he got all his sons together in this room. They're all standing there, seven tall, dark, and handsome men. Picture in your mind, the sons of Jesse standing all in a line and they're all handsome and beautiful. I'm, sometimes when I'm flipping through the television I, uh, I get these bodybuilding shows, you know. Now when the women are on there, you know, I, that's the most, well, that's another story, but here, here are these guys, you know, and they got them up there and they're, you know, and they're you know, doing this kind of stuff and, and flexing their muscles. And, and every time I read that, every time I read this, I think of that, you know. It must be like ESPN's bodybuilding, um, you know, tournament. And here are all these men, seven men in a row, and they're all tall and handsome and capable, seven of them. In the Bible, always, the number seven stands for perfection. Let me tell you what's happening here. These sons of Jesse are the picture of the perfection of the flesh. But the perfection of the flesh is always rejected in heaven. And remember this, that that which is done in the flesh is no profit to God. I want you to believe this, that God never anoints the efforts of the flesh no matter how perfect those efforts are. And the only thing that matters in the work of God is that which God anoints. And He never anoints human effort regardless of how perfect that human effort is. For all that we are apart from God, all that we are apart from what God at the moment of our conversion has given us by His grace is sentenced to God's judgment. I need to say that again because I got it all fouled up there. All that we are and all that we have apart from what 
we are given by His grace at the moment of our regeneration is sentenced to God's judgment no matter how intellectual or proud or good we may be. For God will not anoint the efforts of the flesh. And here stood seven men. Any one of them was king material, except God is not going to anoint the efforts of the flesh. And verse 7 gives the principle of it all. For verse 7 says that God sees not what man sees. Man looks at the face, it says. He looks at the outside. But God looks at the heart. And we say, I wish I had his ability, or I wish I had her looks. But not God never gets hung up on externals. Take a look at the preacher of this church and be glad that God never gets hung up on externals. God sees not what man sees. I was reading the other day a book that tried to describe what Paul was like. Everybody knows that he must have been the ugliest human being ever walked the earth. This historian said that Paul was a man of moderate stature, curly-haired, scanty, crooked legs, long, matted eyebrows, and large, ugly nose, and he had an infirmity of the flesh. And when he came to, get, when he came to, the, to the Greeks, they despised him at first sight. And if they had chosen preacher, you know, the pulpit committee went out selecting on the basis of looks, they would have never chosen him. And when you and I select someone for our business or whatever on the basis of the external, we make a terrible mistake. Now, Samuel said, you know, he looked around, he said, Are there, is there anybody else? This is strange. God said, none of these. Is there anybody else? You'd think that, that David would be in the house there, would you? I mean, if he's going to get all his kids together, you'd think David's going to at least be there. But uh, Jesse said, well, I've got a son that's out tending sheep. He's the youngest. Now, when you look at that, you think in terms of chronology and time. It's not what that word means in the Hebrew. It means that I've got a son that's so insignificant to me, I didn't even include him in the family. Now that'll bless you. My mother liked my sister better than me, but man, I'll tell you, this is terrible. I mean, he had seven sons, and he didn't even include David in the family. He didn't, he, he, he didn't even see him as king material at all. He made two mistakes. Listen to this. He didn't have equal appreciation for all of his children. Am I speaking to any daddies and moms? He didn't have equal appreciation for all of his children. Secondly, he failed to cultivate self-respect between all the guys. He failed to cultivate self-respect for all the guys. Now I'm going to stop preaching this minute and start meddling. I'm going to give you, I'm going to get up on my soapbox and I'm going to lay something that's in the heart of me. It's time we declared an all-out war on the destructive value system called the beauty cult and the intelligence cult. 
if a kid has intelligence and money and beauty, somehow we say that kid's got it made. God help him if he's dumb and ugly and broke. And we need to declare an all-out war on that. It's present in the school system. It's present in the home. It's present everywhere. And we kind of put these kids that have beauty and intelligence and wealth on these pedestals to neglect the others. There are ways to teach a child significance. And every child is entitled to hold his head up in confidence and know that we consider him as somebody regardless what he looks like. We can't help it because we're ugly. <laughs> are you a parent? Now, well, let me, are you an elder brother? I mean, there's siblings here. Why didn't these siblings say, Dad, where's, where's David? He did, he's in our family. And there is this all-out rejection. No wonder God didn't choose these boys. I got, a, I got a strong opinion about the fact that nobody is king material if he rejects somebody else. Nobody is leadership material if he bases his respect or his acceptance of others on the basis of what they look and how much they know. And I wouldn't, you know... I wouldn't vote for anybody as president of my class that you know, accepted people only on the basis of their looks and intelligence. Now look at verse 13. Soapbox time is through. Look at verse 13. Chapter, chapter seven, uh, 16. Now I want to show you something beautiful. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now there's, it's obvious there, it's obvious there, they didn't know what was going on. I guarantee if those brothers knew that Samuel was anointing their brother as the king, they would have, they would have certainly acted different. They didn't know what was going on. Josephus said that when that when somebody anointed someone with oil to set them apart, they whispered in their ear what was happening. And he said that at that moment that that oil began to run down on the head of David, Samuel leaned over and whispered in his ear, You're the king. Well, that must have set him on fire. You're the king. And I want you to see something that probably you've never seen before. You can go out of here tonight and this ought to set you free. It ought, to, it ought to mean something to you. Look at that verse 13. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. That's the only reference in the Old Testament where the Spirit of the Lord came permanently upon somebody. You ever notice that? Now the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament, but we all know that the Holy Spirit would come mightily upon those men of the Old Testament, men of God or women, and then the Holy Spirit would remove Himself from them. Samson is a case in point. But this reference says that at that moment the Holy Spirit came on David from then on. He came permanently upon the life of David. He was a different man. He was a man who had 
the New Testament indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament day. And God had anointed him. Now what happens to David? Did he say, well boys, get ready, step back, you're looking at the king. <laughs> no. He's, verse 18, we'll just jump a little ahead, said, says that old David went right back to what he had been doing before tending sheep. Let me tell you something. When you're the king and you know you're the king, you don't have to flaunt it. When, you, when, when, when you've been anointed and you've been crowned, you don't have to try to, you don't have to prove that to anybody. It, 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 it's wonderful. Here's old David and he, he's, he, Samuel has whispered in his ear and he's felt the anointing of God upon him and, 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 and he's, he's, he's been crowned. So he's go back and tend sheep, whatever, you know, whatever he's supposed to do. When it gets time for him to sit on the throne, God will put him there. Let his tribe increase. How terrible it is, how difficult it is to handle promotions and successes. Now somewhere in all this tonight is a little bitty piece of paper that has the conclusion on it. Or it's still in my office <laughs> on my desk. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm gonna, not going to fake it. Try to make up something. I didn't memorize it. I wrote it down. And I'll have to finish <laughs> it next week. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, somebody stole that, I know. I, I had these notes on my, I went over to the hospital today and I had these notes. This, this, this sermon like to not have got preached. You've been you, you were, you know, stand up and cheer. Last week I said in my sermon that if something happened, I'd quit preaching. If somebody would show me somebody, you remember that? I know you do. This kid came up to me, one of our young people, and he said, when you said that, I heard four people on my row said, let's find that guy. Let's. <laughs> so he'll quit. Well, I had these sermon notes in my car and I was going over to see the people at the hospital and I was memorizing my sermon in the car. Got out, went in the hospital, came back, sermon was gone. Thought that thing blew away. <laughs> Finally found it, but evidently conclusion is not in it. Oh, great. Would you pray with me? We got to get out of here. Father, we believe tonight that in the panics of life that you know all about it and that you're taking care of it. And God, I thank you that at all the time that we feel so helpless and frustrated in life, that you're raising up people, God, and you're raising up experiences and things, just what we need. And Lord, it just becomes clearer and clearer that even today and this morning, we felt so helpless, and so frightened. 
just knew that these precious, this precious child would not make it. All the time, you were working. You were in control. God, help us to be still and know that you're God. And when we feel those anxious moments, those panics come, help us to know that that you're raising up the anointed. And God, teach us to understand that the only thing that really you can use is that which you have anointed. And so we give you our life tonight and we pray that you will anoint our feeble efforts and our struggles. Anoint God, our witness, let there be no song sung here that has not been anointed. Let there be no witness given that has not been anointed. Let there be no sermon preached that does not have your anointing. Let there be no Sunday school taught, no mission organization no food served, God, without your anointing upon that work. Help us to know that when you anoint our parenting and when you anoint our love for our spouse, that that is what you use. Now for this moment of invitation, draw God to yourself, a group of committed people, who have, who have given their all to you because I ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Somehow I believe tonight that God will anoint this invitation. Certainly not the perfection of the flesh. And there might be some this morning, tonight who would come to say, would like to come to say, I, 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 I want to give my heart to Christ. I want to join the church. I want to place my life in the position where God could use me. God could anoint me. I want God to use me. Does anyone like to come and make a, a, a public stand for Christ? While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.